This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And uh, today I have the great pleasure, again, of welcoming back uh, Rob Coleman, who is the chief scientific officer at uh, U.S. Uh, Oncology Research. Um, and um, this is obviously a very exciting uh, topic, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to discussing this with uh with Rob, uh, this is the, the recently published article in Lancet Oncology uh, titled Efficacy and Safety of uh, Tisotumab Vedotin in Previously Treated Recurrent or Metastatic Cervical Cancer in OVA TV204, GOG3023, and GOT CX6, a multi-center open-label single-arm phase 2 study. Um, so, Rob, again, uh, welcome to, to the podcast. It's uh, really great to have you, uh, and, uh, and really, obviously, congratulations on this, uh, on this uh, work. So, really looking forward to discussing this with you. Well, thank you so much, Peter. It's always good to be with you, and thanks for taking the time out to discuss this. You're right. This is an exciting time uh, in the field of cervix cancer. There's been a lot of development, and uh, we're really proud to really think that the, the 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 team that worked on this that really brought uh, this particular product forward and we're excited now to have it in the clinic and and uh and hopefully we continue to expand on it so thank well, you for the invitation of course fantastic and i should uh, also just mention that through the podcast, uh, we're going to refer to Tezotumab um, Vedotin uh, as TV. Uh, so obviously, make the podcast a lot shorter and, and easier easier for me to pronounce. <laughs> I love it. Sounds uh, good. So, uh, uh, Rob, let's start by, uh, if you just give us an overview of uh, where we are today with respect to the treatment of uh, advanced or recurrent uh, cervical cancer. And uh, obviously, I know that there's been some uh, recent developments that I'm sure you're going to mention. Yeah, sure. Thanks. You know, um, you know, we have, those of you who participated in the GOG or participated in uh, the series of trials, phase two trials with cervical cancer over the years, have you know noticed that there's been this you know relatively paucity of active drugs, and the most active ones ended up in our phase three trials. And so you know we identified platinum long ago, um, then then more recently uh, uh, paclitaxel, and we started putting these into um, into doublets and triplets and quadruplets as as part of a systematic evaluation of these of these agents in, in patients with uh, metastatic or recurrent cervix cancer. And so, you know, we, we've made some incremental progress over the last, you know, 25 years. Um, it's hard to believe that, you know, in 1970, 1997, we had, you know, one of the first phase three uh, trials that was looking at the addition of a new agent, a phosphamide. Uh, and, and we made some very small incremental progress in overall survival, but it was really when two GOG240 hit that we actually had a kind of an, a major kind of incremental increase in, in expectation of overall survival. But what that left us with is we've used all of our active drugs in that kind of initial setting. And so we started this long search uh, to try to find something new. Um, and so so while we made these incremental gains, um, there's been a tremendous need to continue to add to the portfolio. And so uh, that's kind of what you know served as the basis for, for this trial. Great. Um, and Rob, uh, tell us a little bit of first of it as to what is TV and, and how does it work? Yeah, so TV is a, is is a uh, is part of a class of drugs called an antibody drug conjugate. In this case, uh, the the antibody that's being used as a kind of a targeted homing mechanism is tissue is an antibody against tissue factor, which is expressed 
ubiquitously in, in cervix cancers uh, and in other parts of other solid tumors. Um, and what it brings with it uh, in this conjugate is a uh, potent uh, cytotoxic agent called MMAE, which is an Aristan analog that's used in, in many, uh, in one form or another in different um, antibody drug conjugates because it's very cytotoxic, but it's very difficult to deliver systemically unless it's packaged in one of these antibody drug conjugates. Mm. And um, when when you were looking at using this uh, um, product, obviously this approach, um, tell us about this particular uh, study design and, and this trial. Um, when you were looking at the inclusion criteria, um, what were those patients like? And uh, and just tell us also a little bit about the primary and secondary objectives. Yeah, sure. So you know we had we were fortunate um, to have exposure to this in the first in human phase one. Uh, as part of the uh, our early drug investigation program at MD Anderson, um, and so we were had we had demonstrated that this was a a compound that had activity in several solid tumors. But what really caught our eye was, was in cervix cancers. We had sent patients uh, for participation in that study and started some. So we were very excited about that. It was a nice early signal, um, and so we decided that you know we would we would evaluate this more formally. And so we set up a phase two study. Uh, single arm, uh, but uh, one that was looking for objective response as a, as a primary endpoint, but also wanting to look at other fa uh, credible factors that would be necessary to, uh, if they were met, to, to be able to present this to the regulatory authorities, the FDA uh, and the EMA for an opportunity to get this, uh, uh, have a regulatory action like, a, like an accelerated approval. So we looked at uh, factors such as duration of response, uh, of course, uh, um, toxicity, um, and other factors uh, to uh, to be able to provide this kind of portfolio of, of results to the to the agencies. And so, um, so we set up this trial um, to uh, to be large enough to essentially prove that if we saw what we saw in the phase one and one B in cervix cancer was realized in the phase two, that this would be meaningful mm -hmm. uh, because it, because the response rate was you know so much higher than expected the duration response was meaningful for patients and and those those terms have 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 do have numbers associated with them so we we set up this trial specifically to be large enough to evaluate that with uh along with a large safety database to be able to provide those to provide that opportunity So with respect to eligibility, um, we were looking for patients who had been uh, previously exposed to, to chemotherapy uh, for advanced recurrent disease. And we were focused also in trying to provide kind of a more real world um, evaluation where bevacizumab is being used. As I mentioned before, you know, in GOG240, bevacizumab became uh, FDA approved in combination with Pactaxel and cisplatinum. Mm -hmm. And so what we were looking for were specifically patients who would have gone through what we would have considered optimal primary therapy, which would have been either a 240 regimen or one that didn't, did not include bevacizumab if the patient wasn't eligible. So, so we wanted to see patients who had been previously treated with our best standard before. Um, and so as long as they didn't have any other factors such as bleeding, um, at, you know, active bleeding or other eye toxicity, and I, I know we'll get into that, <laughs> then those patients were, would, would have been eligible if they had measurable disease and good performance status to go uh, onto, onto the study. Great. And, um, and when looking at the, uh, before we leave the methodology, 
um, uh-huh. you you set you a study sample size of 100 patients. Uh, mm-hmm. can, can you clarify uh, for those who might wonder, well, how did you come up with 100? Yeah, that was very strategic um, for, for a number of different reasons. So first of all, as I mentioned, we wanted the sample size to be large enough to provide a safety database that would be credible. So, you know, uncommon events needed a large, large sample size to be able to identify what their real, their real um, uh, point estimate was for, for those adverse events. The other was that we wanted to create a large enough sample size that we could exclude what we would consider the background rate of expectation for treatment. So these would be non-platinum, non-taxane-based um, single agents. And we have a long, long history of evaluating those. And we, we, we identified that around um, to 10 to 12% would have been considered the efficacy of the background. And we wanted to definitively exclude that. So with 100 patients, uh, targeting an efficacy that we saw in the phase 1B of between 20 and 25%, we would have 80% power to exclude, to completely exclude the, um, the uh, point estimate for what we would consider the background. And so, um, so that's how we got to 100. So it met an efficacy and a safety kind of uh, benchmark. Great. Um, one of the other things you mentioned previously was obviously the uh, impact of TV on tissue factor. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't recall that I saw whether, did patients have to have a positive testing for tissue factor? If not, why not? And, and also, uh, what is the definition of positive in this setting? Yeah, that's great. So uh, many studies uh, that involve antibody drug conjugates do, do um, have a test for the specific antigen expression. Mm-hmm. Because cervix cancer is, uh, nearly all cervix cancers have tissue factor expression. We did not require it. But we did get biopsies and collected samples so that we could uh, assess tissue factor as this kind of a exploratory endpoint to see whether or not there was any differential, not only for efficacy, but also for toxicity. Mm. So, um, so we collected tissue, either a fresh or archival specimen, but we did not require it to be positive to go on to study. As it turned out, of the, of the 80 or so samples that we were able to test uh, to get reliable results, uh, 76 out of those 80, so almost 90, you know, 6% plus uh, were positive as expected. And as, and as you mentioned, what is positive? It's a good question because, you know, different antibodies, I'm sure we'll talk about this with PDL one you know, they have different criteria for what's considered quote unquote positive. What we used in the study was, uh, was intensity as well as uh, distribution. Mm-hmm. So we looked for both membrane and, and um, cytoplasmic stain as well as um, the intensity of that staining throughout the tissue biopsy. We use an H score, uh, which many different ones use. We wanted to have an H score of greater than one, um, uh, or greater than one, and, and which, which you know, as, as I mentioned, was ubiquitous in this uh, particular sample, but it wasn't required. Yeah. And then just be, and before we get into the results, um, it, it was actually, I, I was looking at this is uh, quite impressive that it was within less than, than a year that you enrolled 102 patients. So how, how many yeah. centers participated <laughs> in this? So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, well, yeah, obviously, you know, when you have something that has a strong signal, you really, you get a lot of enthusiastic response, but this is a, right. this is a long-term program. I can tell you, I had conversations for this for years before the study actually got in place. Um, mm. So we knew about this compound coming uh, for quite a while. And obviously the results seen in the phase 1B did uh, incite a lot of 
uh, excitement across the uh, across the United States and Europe, uh, where there was a lot of development. And I do want to give a shout out to Ignaz Rugot, who was my uh, uh, co uh, PI for this uh, for this for this trial and this program. We did a lot of work together with this, and he was very strong in galvanizing the European community. So we had about eight countries involved, thirty five centers. Um, many of them, in fact, almost all of them had exposure with this uh, compound uh, in early phase development. Mm -hmm. So it was very easy to make the transition uh, over to this, uh, to getting this phase two up and going. And uh, a fair number, a highly prevalent population of recurrent source cancer patients out there. Yeah. Well, congratulations on uh, on such a fast accrual. So now, um, let's get to the uh, to the main findings, the punchline. Uh, what what were the results <laughs> of the of the study? And uh, I was particularly also interested for for you to talk about um, duration of treatment, duration of response, time to response, and of course, obviously, disease control rate. Right. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So, yeah, the, the top line result was objective response, and this was assessed by a blind and independent review, So, uh, which is something that we employ for open label trials so that there's no question or at least there's confirmation of, of, of investigator assessment, um, uh, because obviously in the clinic we're making those, those decisions in real time. Mm -hmm. So uh, objective response was 24%, which um, was right in where we were targeting. As I mentioned, we were looking for a 21 to 25% response rate. We hit it at 24. Um, it was nice. About 70% of those uh, patients had partial response, but 30% had complete responses. And of course, as you know, treating a patient with recurrent service cancer after Pactax, Carplatin, and Bevacizumab to have a complete response is definitely... Unfortunately, uh, you know, the other kind of component of this that I think is, is I think personally, uh, I'd be interested to hear what you think, but I think that when you're treating a patient in the clinic, the lack of progression is actually what you're really making your clinical decisions on rather than objective response. Of course, we absolutely love to tell patients that their tumors are getting smaller, but, you know, we're not making a decision to change therapy on the basis of whether or not it, it shrunk by a little bit and on continuing if it didn't progress meet the criteria for progression. And then if you, and if you saw the waterfall plot in that graphic, you, 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 you probably appreciate that, you know, more, almost three quarters of these patients basically had control of their disease mm -hmm. uh, past these, this assessment cycle. So, um, so that disease control rate of almost 75% is really mm -hmm. impressive and, and meaningful in the clinic. And so these other parameters such as, you know, time to response, which was quick, usually, um, but the median time to response was at the first assessment for the study. So that was right at the six week benchmark, mm -hmm. the duration of response. Again, this is what's considered credible for the regulatory authorities was over eight months. And that's important because what we want to demonstrate is that patients who do respond have a have a, a, a duration of response that's clinically meaningful, which is in quotes because we don't really know what that is, and it's definable by the patient population. So I think you would agree with me that since our expectation for overall survival in this patient population is under a year, mm -hmm. having eight months of duration of response is meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also something you can't fudge, right? I mean, this is several assessment cycles. So yeah, so we were very very excited about about that um, that iteration of response. Yeah, you're absolutely right. As I have a discussion with patients about it, uh, you know, it's what you mentioned is the clinical benefit um, that really uh, mm -hmm. impacts the, the the management of these patients. Um, 
So, Rob, and now getting into some of the, the questions on the, on the details. Um, and this is uh-huh. uh, a question that, you know, when we asked the fellows of the journal uh, to pose questions to the authors, this is actually all the fellows actually asked this question. <laughs> uh, and I think you mentioned a little bit about the percentage of patients that tested positive for tissue factor in the study. But beyond that, um, the question was, do you think that testing positive versus negative makes a difference in the outcomes? And can you speak a little bit about this concept of bystander killing? Yeah, sure. Um, it's great. I, I'm so, it's so exciting to have the fellows like engaged like you have. Uh, I, this is, again, a shout out to you and what you've done with this journal. I mean, getting these kids involved is so exciting to have them credibly review papers and ask these kinds of questions. This is a very good question, obviously, and very important, right? Because if we're ha- talking about a drug that re- requires expression of the antigen to get the compound that's going to kill the cell mm-hmm. to the cell, it makes sense, right? And as I mentioned early on, you know, uh, we didn't we didn't have a hundred percent testing. We test we got about eighty percent of the samples were tested, and as mentioned, ninety six percent of them were positive. So, so there was there was good um, there was good um, uh, you know exposure uh, in cervix in the cervix tumors for this antibody drug content. But I think the question was also, well, what about if you what if you have a lot? You know, is it going to be better than if you have a little? Uh, and that gets gets to the kind of the, the point that you're making about whether or not there is a relationship between intensity or what in this case the H score uh, and the efficacy. And so what we found was that we could not um, identify a differential based on the intensity of score of score and the objective response rate by any of the classification, whether it was stable disease, progressive, or or an objective um, response with complete or partial. So. It, it seems, at least as far as this goes, one of the factors you maybe that you mentioned, which is the bystander effect, may have you know maybe a more important role in cervix cancer than we've seen in other antibody drug conjugates. It's hard to to actually sort that out, but we do know that bystander effects can happen through a number of um, both immunogenic and non-immunogenic. So one factor is is that you know the tumor the the uh, cytotoxic payload gets into the tumor cell when the cell dies, releases the cytotoxic payload to the neighboring environment. So you can get a secondary kind of cell kill that's a direct effect. But it also, uh, because there is cellular death, we do see um, engagement of the immune system. And so we have this antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity component that is activated in the process of, of, of tumor cell death. We also see that the um, that uh, certain types of immune cells, like the uh, the macrophages, get recruited to the microenvironment in that setting, and you see antibody-dependent cellular phagocytosis. Mm. So these two components do add to that that quote-unquote bystander effect that can be both direct and indirect. And so we think that that may have played a role. Uh, in the efficacy of this drug in, in this disease. Yeah, very interesting. Now, you did a, a subgroup analysis, and you looked at a, a number of factors. I recall histology, uh, previous yep. uh, lines of systemic uh, therapy, previous platinum plus radiation. Um, what, what did you find uh, when you did the subgroup analysis? Anything that uh, came up there that was uh, of interest? So I think the one thing I would say is that, um, you know, first of all, subgroups are, are meant to evaluate the, whether or not there's a, you know, differential, potential differential effect from the overall results of the trial. And so the dotted line that usually you see on these subgroup analysis basically represents the results of the trial plus the confidence interval. And so what you saw in all those factors that you mentioned was that there was a consistency of efficacy across 
um, across all of those these these you know subgroups that we were looking at. Uh, we did probably, if you wanted to, you know, really dig into it, um, uh, what I would say is that they were all consistent. But if you really want to dig into it, you know, there may be some uh, less efficacy in more heavily pretreated patients or those that have poorer performance status. But again, whether or not that's actually reflective of the drug or, you know, factors that relate to the patient um, are, are ones that would need to be sorted out. But none of the uh, factors that you mentioned particularly like histology mm-hmm. um, and and, pri- and previous exposure to bevacizumab seem to me to be meaningful in deviating the expectation uh, from what we saw in the overall overall study result. Yeah. So this next question comes from uh, Eric Estrada. He's in Guatemala and he, um, you know, he is interested in um, representation of patient populations in these studies. Yeah. And, uh, one of the things he highlights, he noted, uh, was that 95% of the participants in the study were white. Um, mm-hmm. Thoughts on whether we can generalize these findings to other populations like Asians or African Americans? Yeah, that's such an important question. Uh, so it's it's so critical. And obviously, this has got the attention of almost uh, all regulatory authorities as well. And we've seen, uh, to your point, we've seen... Uh, when these drugs get out, you know, in the wild, as I say, mm-hmm. when they get out into, into, you know, into general use, uh, you start seeing toxicities that you didn't see in the study. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's such an important, and it's really, it's our, um, in, you know, our intent to try to continue to find ways to diversify the patient populations. But so we did see some different, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, there are some ethnic subgroups within these, you know, quote unquote, white population. But I do think the point that's raised is very important. Uh, and it's why when we do a study like this, that they are also uh, required to have a confirmatory trial. So this is an accelerated approval uh, agent. Mm-hmm. So it requires confirmation of efficacy in a larger phase three trial, but also for all approved drugs, um, there is a post-marketing uh, uh, requirement to the regulatory agencies to provide uh, information regarding uh, efficacy and safety in populations that would not would be outside of the clinical trial. So if you, for instance, if you were treating a patient who uh, and had an adverse event, you as a treating physician is to report that to the company so that they can provide that information to the FDA to build their database on the impact of these drugs in different uh, study pop- in different populations that weren't included in the study. Yeah. So now, Rob, the next series of questions. Obviously, you you knew we were going to get into this, and uh, is uh, <laughs> related to the uh, side effects. And you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting because as I have proposed uh, this regimen, uh, you know, often you know the, the the feedback from the pharmacists as we're discussing uh, moving forward, they're like, "Have you talked to the patient about the side effects?" Um, so let's get into the side effects. What were the most common side effects and, and what was the frequency of these most common side effects? Yeah, that's a uh, great, uh, and, and very important, obviously for, especially for a new drug, uh, it's getting into the market to, to understand this. So, so the most common effects that we saw, um, uh, fortunately were not, high. we did see related adverse event in you know in in most of the patients in the study um which is what we expected so it was expected like a peach uh, um fortunately there was uh relatively uh low levels of of uh, uh factors like heavy myelosuppression 
um, you know, the things that you would expect to see with uh, cytotoxic agents. And that's a tribute to the, the actual, um, uh, you know, antibody drug conjugate itself. The one that was um, that we saw frequently that we expected uh, was the ocular toxicity, mm -hmm. uh, the conjunctivitis, um, and uh, this was seen in about uh, you know more than a more than a quarter of patients uh, at um, uh, ocular toxicity overall being seen in over half the patients, mm -hmm. and and we had expected this because uh, as I mentioned in the phase one B study uh, when we expanded that cohort we did see this toxicity. And um, and we were prepared for it. Uh, we actually had, had planned for it, and um, uh, and we had initiated an ocular regimen during the phase two. Oh, excuse me, during the phase one that we then uh, implemented in the phase two. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, no, and I, and I wanted to actually, obviously, talk a little bit more about that ocular uh, toxicity. And you mentioned it was conjunctivitis. I was wondering if you can uh, highlight um, the grade of these ocular toxicities, because obviously I think that when you speak about TV, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, some everybody wants to know, well, what about the ocular toxicities? And uh, mm -hmm. have we explained that to the patients. How bad were they? Um, and and what, what were some of the symptoms that these patients were developing? Right. So the most common um, side effect that we see is uh, is conjunctivitis. So it's just as it sounds. It's it's the it's inflammation of the conjunctiva. Mm -hmm. um, in this particular trial, we had two patients who had ulcerative keratitis, um, mm -hmm. which is a different discontinued therapy. So, um, but the conjunctivitis uh, for most patients uh, was relatively mild. Um, it was, it rarely led to discontinuation. Um, so the any grade toxicity of conjunctivitis we saw was, was in about 26, you know, 25, 26% of patients, but none of those patients had grade three. So, um, uh, so dry keratitis conjunctivitis are the most common ocular events that we saw, but it's a, it, it, because of the event of these more serious, um, uh, toxicities, such as, uh, an ulcerative keratitis. It, 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 it emphasizes why it's so important to have this conversation every cycle mm. with the patient, which is, have you noticed any changes in vision? Uh, are you experiencing dry eye? Uh, are you having any pain? Uh, and then doing a visual inspection of the eye. Now, as you know, this particular drug, uh, when it was uh, received as accelerated approval, it, it had a black, black box warning that required that at least a conjunctival exam be performed by an, uh, an, a, uh, an, a, not an ophthalmologist, but an, uh, an eye uh, clinician mm -hmm. uh, who can do that type of uh, evaluation to make sure that there aren't other uh, factors that are going on because scarring and ulceration would be, you know, factors that would need treatment discontinuation. We want to make sure that happens even though they're very uncommon. Yeah, and Robin, one of the things that I've uh, obviously heard in discussions is this issue of the eye care plan. Um, right. And is that something that has to happen before every single cycle, or is this just before the patient initiates therapy, and if they're okay moving forward, then uh, they can uh, obviously uh, continue with the therapy? Right. So the best practice is this be done every cycle. And that's that there's an, so it's, it's discussion with the patient, as I mentioned, evaluation of the eye. Then we, there's a, we put in the vasoconstrictors. Uh, we do cool packs over the eyes for uh, 10 minutes or so before the infusion. 
And then for about 20 minutes after infusion, there's three cold packs in the, in, that we give over each of them lasting around 20 minutes. Uh, we use lubricating drops, steroids at the end of the infusion, and we continue those for 72 hours afterwards. And then liberally use lubricating eye drops um, during, uh, throughout the, the course of treatment. So every, if you, you know, if, and we found that if you follow this regimen, you can reduce the uh, uh, high grade toxicity almost completely. And you can reduce the low grade toxicity by at least 25%. So um, we're pretty, you know, we've, this is one of those things you just want to be very um, uh, strict about uh, because it's, you don't want to have to give up on a regimen that's helping a patient because of a side effect that could have been avoided. Yeah. And this is one last question about the side effect and obviously the ocular toxicity from Emma Allison in, uh, in Australia. And her question is, are there any hard stops at the baseline ophthalmology evaluation that would tell you this patient should definitely not be on TV? Uh, what, what are some of those potential, uh, you know, ocular issues coming into the treatment that would say, well, you're definitely not a candidate? Yeah, that's, and that's an important question. And we talk about this in the paper in the exclusion criteria. Um, there are there weren't very many uh, factors that would have been like, hey, listen, you can't go on study at. I mean, you can't go on this drug at all. But those the ones would be the ones that would be um, uh, that you would expect. So anybody who has active ocular surface disease. Mm -hmm. So these would be disorders of the cornea, conjunctiva, eyelids, or the lacrimal glands, uh, Stevens Johnson syndrome, or the cetricol. Um, conjunctivitis, which is this scarring that you'll see um, if you actually pull down the eyelids. Is, you've seen this before. You probably have seen this before because mm -hmm. you can see it with other conditions. But if they have evidence of scarring already on the cornea mm -hmm. and on the on the conjunctiva, then those patients should not be uh, given the medicine. Nor if if this occurs while they're taking the regimen, then these are these are other reasons to stop therapy. Yeah. And, and Rob, now just a, a few questions regarding sort of moving forward and potentially expanding the use of TV. Uh, this question sure. is also from Emma Allison, uh, and she asks, if, tumor, if tissue factor expression is regulated by hypoxia in the tumor microenvironment, do you think that there is a role for TV as an adjuvant alongside radiotherapy in high-risk patients post-surgery in the initial treatment? <laughs> yeah, this would be great to be able to move it all the way up into that first line <laughs> study. I think there's, uh, you know, I think you know we've been very uh, uh, methodical about about the development of TV because of its activity as a single agent, and so so there's there's a, a very uh, robust program looking at, at various combinations, uh, including combination with bevacizumab, mm -hmm. uh, which would uh, go along with questions she's she's asking, but also in combination with uh, immunotherapy um, and. If you think about this as a cytotoxic that 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 targets the tubular mechanism, you could look at this as almost as a potential replacement for paclitaxel. Mm. And so, if you're thinking along those lines, um, the question that she asks is that if we can find a way to replace it, it as a cytotoxic agent in those regimens, yes, we I can definitely see it um, migrating into even an adjuvant setting. But I think we need to make sure that we have the the safety and efficacy uh, benchmarks along the way. And that's really the, the focus of the current development program, not only as a single agent, but in these combinations that I just mentioned. Yeah. The next question is Sarah Nasser from Germany, and she's asking pretty much about sequencing. Um, you know, when yeah. you have a patient that has progressed on carbopaclitaxel, bevacizumab, a patient is pdl one positive. Should you yeah. 
give TV first and then Pemberlism app <laughs> later? Or should you go straight to Pemberlism app and then TV as a third option? Yeah. So it's a, that's an important question. We talk about this gosh, it seems like every week because, um, you know, this, because the, um, in some respects, the answer to this kind of question uh, is also focused on what's available to you as far as a treatment regimen. And we didn't really get into it, but the, um, uh, you know, as uh, we had just seen with Keno at 826, Pem Pembrolizumab has moved up to essentially be added to the GOG 240 regimen, which would have been, so there have been, prior, if, if you have that regimen available to you, many people now are considering to add pembrolizumab to that line of therapy that would have been before this therapy. So many of those patients would have had been, uh, you know, would have had prior exposure to pembrolizumab. Um, but for those patients who didn't have um, uh, exposure to pembrolizumab, I, I have kind of gone in looking at this from a different perspective, and that's whether or not an objective response is actually, you know, in, needed uh for instance for control of symptomatology or um or some other factor um uh related to the tumor where where it is one of the things that we did not see with keynote 158 is really rapid responses what we what we like about 158 is that there's a small cohort of patients who have these this very long tail of their progression-free survival curve that you know ultimately may derive a very long-term benefit uh, from that regimen, but it's such a small fraction of the of the overall patient population that if you really need a, an objective response, one thing you'll know about TV is that that objective response happened right at the six-week time point on the median. So if you need an objective response, uh, I probably would go TV first, September second. On the other hand, if uh, if the patient you know, is looking for potentially a long term, um, you know, benefit, you you can um, you know expose them and see if they don't have a progressive event early and use TV second. So so I you can make a case either way. But what I think is going to happen as as eight twenty six becomes more um, prolific in the treatment environment, you're, is that you're going to have. Um, uh, you know, exposure to pembrolizumab earlier and earlier, and so TV will be kind of in line uh, uh, for the next line of therapy. Very well. So now, Rob, as we uh, come to some of our concluding questions, um, obviously when we look at these results, 24% uh, response rates, 75% uh, clinical benefit, uh, one would say, of course, I mean, why, why not? They said this is uh, mm -hmm. an, an amazing finding, you know, obviously – uh, breakthrough and, and every patient should be on this. Uh, what are some of the mm -hmm. limitations of the study where you would say, well, let's, uh, let's uh, look at this with some caution. Yeah. And I think this, and that's an important point that you bring up. Uh, remember this is an accelerated approval. So it's a single arm trial in a very defined patient population. We already talked about diversity of patients as being one of the limitations. Um, and so it needs confirmation. Um, now, in many cases, uh, the confirmatory trial is, uh, you know, does does show that there's a there's a benefit. But as you've seen recently, and we've had an FDA recent um, uh, meeting uh, to look at the efficacy of these, you know, checkpoint I mean, checkpoint inhibitors that have not proved to be beneficial in their confirmatory trials, that we could we could be wrong. So while we're, we highly anticipate that this will be will be as good or better than chemotherapy, um, and that's really the focus of the phase three, uh, we could be wrong. 
Uh, and so, um, so that's also going to be a potential limitation is that it, it would be not confirmed. And obviously a limitation is that, you know, this is going to be, um, more work on both the patient and the provider, mm-hmm. um, it, to give this regimen, it requires, an, in, you know, a, 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 eye, uh, healthcare specialist, uh, or at least somebody who can do, um, these slit lamp exams, uh, before every cycle. So that's an inconvenience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it involves time. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's not something you can, you can just, um, you know, uh, give and then walk away. I mean, it needs, these patients need monitoring. So that can be a, a limitation, at least in the difficulty of extrapolating the results to the, to the real world. But I think from the standpoint of, you know, of, of, you know, amassing a patient population that's carefully defined, um, using, uh, strict criteria for what's observed as a response by an independent, um, secondary, you know, source. And, and then also getting at least uh, what we think is a, a relatively good evaluation of the safety. Uh, I think that the trial overall, you know, should be taken at, you know, at face value at, at, at what it shows and, and that we know its limitations uh, based on what it's trying to show. And those are going to be important in consideration for, uh, for making a decision to use this with patients. Yeah, and Rob, you, you mentioned accelerated approval. Um, just for, also particularly for our international audience, can you elaborate yeah. a little bit as to like what is an FDA accelerated approval? Yeah, again, another very important question. Thanks for bringing it up. So in 1992, uh, uh, the FDA um, passed uh, a program uh, uh, with uh, congressional support, actually, to provide an avenue to bring uh, drugs at that time that were focused on HIV uh, as a, um, uh, to bring them to the clinic faster so that there could be more rapid development of drug de- uh, drugs. It did not take long for that to pivot away from HIV to cancer, to mm-hmm. oncology. And uh, over, so, so for the last 30 years, this program has been uh, 80% dominated by oncology-related uh, uh, products. And the program is set up essentially to provide um, an early look at, um, at data, just like the study was done, uh, demonstrating efficacy that was measured by not only response, but duration of response and safety. And if it met criteria that was considered to be, to be uh, addressing uh, efficacy in an unmet clinical need, so another kind of broad term, then there was an opportunity for the FDA to grant it accelerated approval, which allowed the the sponsor to market the drug for use while a confirmatory trial was being conducted. And the intent was that the confirmatory trial would be mostly enrolled at the time that accelerated approval was granted for the, uh, for the drug so that in short order, you would have a, a confirmatory trial that would show that it was beneficial and that would lead to full approval. So this kind of one-two punch has really aided uh, drug development. I think there's been more than 150 or 60 um, compounds that have been, uh, have gone through this process since uh, 1992. So it's been a very important process for us uh, for drug development uh, in the United States and now uh, also in Europe. Mm -hmm. So now, Rob, that brings us to our last question, and always, again, uh, mm-hmm. really enjoyed speaking with you. I've really learned a lot from uh, from this podcast. Uh, what's what's the future for for this drug for TV? Right. So you know, as I mentioned, the, 
first uh, immediate impact will be conf- confirmation of this in the phase three. So hopefully that, that will happen mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll have this. And so the development program for this, as I mentioned, is to try to combine this not only with, uh, uh, you know, compounds that we know are active, but also other potential that may take advantage of the uh, mechanism of action. So immunologically and, uh, you know, as I mentioned with bevacizumab, with the uh, opportunities for um, angiogenesis inhibition, that these drugs might actually be quite important for um, uh, for developing uh, uh, indication, not only in this exact same setting, but also earlier on, as uh, was mentioned by Emma uh, in her question as well, uh, of moving this into an earlier line of therapy, either as a um, as an addition to uh, in the 240 space, which would be the first line treatment, or even in the adjuvant setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's where this is going. And there's a it, it, the program is very robust, uh, and we have a lot of protocols ongoing. So, if you have access to them wherever you are out there <laughs> in the podcast land, please and consider enrolling your patients on these trials. Excellent. Rob Coleman, thank you so much. Once again, always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you once again for accepting our our invitation. And really, congratulations for this really great work and and to your team Uh, as well. Well, thank you so much, Peter. It's always great to speak with you. And thank you for doing this uh, on behalf of our listeners. Uh, It's really great to have the opportunity to get this message out.